Welcome to Read, the research, education, and advocacy podcast. In this series, prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators will share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in education and child development. I'm Danielle Scarano, the Windward Institute's Research and Development Director and your host of the Read Podcast. Welcome, readers, to the first episode of 2022. Oh my gosh. It has been over two years, 28 episodes, I believe, and over 20,000 downloads from listeners in nearly 80 countries worldwide. It has been quite a journey. So with that being said, I wanted to start this year with a lot of energy and expert information. We talked about the science of reading last year, and while years don't operate in their silos, I wanted to start this year with evidence-based practices that support the science of reading. There was no one else I could think of than Dr. Louise Spear-Swirling. This episode with Dr. Swirling is packed with important information for educators. When I mean educators, I mean literally everyone in education who cares to support our children's reading. So that includes classroom teachers, school leaders, reading specialists, psychologists, even policymakers. I know the policy arena is filled with a lot of momentum to target reading. And this episode is an important and first step to understanding what we know about evidence-based practices and how that translates into schools. So please share this episode with colleagues, friends, groups. I guarantee it is one that everyone will gain insights from. Let me introduce you to Dr. Louise Spear-Swirling. Dr. Swirling is well known across education and reading as a professor at the Department of Special Education at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, Connecticut. Through her work in Connecticut, she has prepared both general and special educators to teach reading using structured literacy approaches for many years. She's the author of several books, a researcher, and a member of several journal editorial boards. Dr. Swirling's work extends in creating professional standards for teachers of reading and in key policy areas, and her consulting work in Connecticut has helped to facilitate and improve achievement for students with severe or persistent literacy difficulties. Here's a fun fact for those who know the WI team. Dr. Swirling was the graduate advisor for our associate director, Annie Stutzman. Hey, Annie. So take notes, actively engage, record your questions, and I'll see you after the episode, readers. Good morning, everyone, on the Read Podcast, and good morning to my guest for January 2022, Dr. Spears Swirling. Good morning. Good morning. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. We are recording this in December, but for some reason, I feel like we have this New Year's January 22 energy. And the reason why is to give our readers some backstory. And we had spoken a few weeks ago, Dr. Spears Swirling, about how I first came to know you. You know, in my research and work at the Windward School and the Windward Institute, there's been a lot of research that I've read that was authored by you. It really started, though, in my dissertation in fall 2018. I started my literature review. And for our listeners, and you know, my dissertations on coaching reading teachers. And I just kept coming time and time again to article after article penned by you and from teacher prep to teacher knowledge to teacher skills later to find out that you were the graduate advisor for our associate director of the Windward Institute, Annie Stutzman. And that's right. Like, you know, to talk to you as a professor, an author, a presenter, an educator, you were key in policy initiatives in Connecticut. I'm telling you, this is New Year energy. So thank you for being here today. That's my pleasure. And thank you. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Thank you. Okay. So let's start with structured literacy. And you wrote an article 
called Structured Literacy and Typical Reading Practices in 2018. It's an article that I often refer to or send to colleagues in the broader education community who have questions about structured literacy. And I know that your work spans much beyond the article. You spent decades across education in this work, and you are the expert. So tell us first, what is structured literacy and how is it connected to or different from the science of reading, from what we hear in current research and current media and current education today? Sure. So structured literacy is an umbrella term for a family of explicit teaching approaches um, that are based in, in current knowledge about what's effective in reading instruction, particularly for students who struggle or are at risk in some way. And it would include a focus on certain component abilities that we know are important in learning to read, such as phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary knowledge, um, morphology, things like that, but also uh, approaches that have certain instructional features, such as explicit teaching of important skills, systematic teaching, which means you have a, an organized sequence starting with simpler skills and progressing to more complex skills. It would also include features such as providing prompt targeted feedback to children's errors. Um, a really important one that I think often doesn't get uh, a lot of attention in the educational community is purposeful selections of instructional examples, tasks, and texts. So those are some of the features of structured literacy. Uh, some of the most, I'd say some of the most important ones. Science of reading is a broader term that refers to scientific research on how, how children learn to read, why children have difficulty different profiles or patterns of reading difficulties, which is one of the areas that I've been particularly interested in because I think it's a particularly useful research for practitioners. Um, and it would also include research on instruction, but science of reading is a much broader term than that. I appreciate you saying that because I've often heard people saying, oh, we're going to use the science of reading instruction or we're going to just use the science of reading in in our schools. And I, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down to say, okay, here's the larger research body on the science of reading. Here's structured literacy to support those. And then the individual features of structured literacy was one I, I'm really happy that you highlighted. I want to dive a little bit more into the key components of structured literacy. You talked about explicit, systematic, and sequential teaching, practice and review, high student-teacher interaction, which you said includes this targeted feedback and this careful selection of examples, non-examples, texts. Can you elaborate, actually, elaborate a little bit more on those features? And if you can, where maybe are some of those common pitfalls that people fall into when they're trying to actualize this type of instruction in their classrooms? Well, so for example, um, an example of careful example selection would be if a teacher is working with children at the very beginning stages of decoding. A word pattern that's commonly taught early on would be 
uh, consonant, vowel, consonant, or CBC words. That includes words that, um, it, it involves words that have a short vowel. So words like man, lip, met, words like that. Well, the teacher has to be really careful not to inadvertently select confusing examples, like a word such as um, far, F-A-R, looks like consonant, vowel, consonant, but it's actually a vowel R, and it's got a different vowel sound, doesn't have a short vowel sound. Or a word such as was um, looks like consonant, vowel, consonant, but it's usually it's taught as a phonetically irregular word. So if a school has a good phonics curriculum in place, that can kind of help teachers select appropriate examples. But but teacher knowledge is always important. You know, both things are really important. I've I've sometimes heard it claimed that, uh, you know, a good teacher can teach well, a knowledgeable, competent teacher can teach well with any curriculum. I don't believe that that's true. Some curricula make it really hard to teach effectively. Um, On the other hand, Good teaching is never just about, you know, robotic teaching of a particular scripted curriculum. Um, so, so both kinds of features would be really important. Um, and I think you asked me something else, but I forget what it was. And something at the end, there was another question in there. Yeah, it asked about some common pitfalls. And I, I like how you talked about the CVC uh, because you're illuminating something that Actually, it's often funny. I'll be talking to my non-teacher reading teacher friends that don't really know anything about like, the structure of how literacy works. And I'll say that. I'll say, you know, man and lip are actually different from was and far. They'll say, why? And it's because of the rules that are governed by the with the English language. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why would the lay person or even someone who hasn't even learned about the rules of language why would those types of words be different? So, so um, that's a, a really important question because I think that it's off, the difficulty of teaching early reading and phonics is often underestimated. People think that if you can read well yourself and you're warm and fuzzy with little kids, that's enough to be a good, you know, first grade or kindergarten teacher of reading. But English is an orthographically complex language. It's still got a lot of regularity in it. So it's not as it's sometimes claimed that, you know, English, um, it, you know, is so irregular that there's no point in teaching phonics. Well, that's really not true. A word that has an AR pattern, one syllable word with an AR, the AR is almost always going to say R, as in far, farm, um, you know, barn, car, and so on. So, but the point is, you have to look at the letter pattern. English often can't be decoded well in a letter-by-letter fashion. Some languages like Spanish, in a in a language like Spanish, the letter A, a is almost always an A, like in abuela or taco. But English doesn't work like that. An A could be um, A, like in cat, but it could be A, like in tame. It can be um, the sound you hear in the AR combination. It could be an uh, like in ago, 
like when it's a prefix. So there's patterns. It's not even necessarily that children have to learn formal rules, although there's some formal rules that are helpful, but what they really need to attend to are patterns in words. And some children will kind of pick that up without a lot of difficulty. You know, for some children, that aspect of reading comes easily without a lot of systematic instruction, but a pretty high proportion of kids really benefit from the systematic instruction and kids with significant reading difficulties, you know, almost always require it in order to do well. And in order to teach that, an adult, a highly literate adult does not have that knowledge simply by virtue of being a good reader yourself. So teacher prep really needs to teach it, which it often does not do. And um, I would say it's important to be taught, like not only in relation to phonics skills, but also in relation to higher level language skills. So, um, for instance, certain types of syntax or sentence structure are more difficult for children. And if the teacher is aware of that, then there's scaffolding that you can do to help the student understand the sentence. But you have to have the knowledge about structure of language. So that's a really important part of good teacher preparation in my opinion. Mm. And so I, I appreciate you talking about the language piece because another, again, I mean, I, you know, when I'm, I'm hearing this in popular news, you hear about this reading war is that it's phonics versus everyone else. And I appreciate you bringing in the language piece of it. So would you, in a typical structured literacy lesson with these features, would there be this explicit instruction in language and sentence structures folded in as well? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. What you would ideally have that I think, unfortunately, is not what happens in most schools, but which what you would ideally have is a core general, general education program. What what in an RTI model is called tier one instruction, would provide explicit systematic teaching of all these important components, phonics, sentence structure, phonemic awareness, vocabulary, et cetera. And um, then you would have differentiation. If you have kids who come in that this aspect of reading comes very easily to them, you move them ahead. Or those are the kids that might move more quickly into independent reading or project work or something like that. But for the kids who need, you know, who are more at risk, you're at least starting with some kind of structure in place and some explicit teaching. Um, And then kids who need more than what they're getting in general ed would get the intervention in whatever their weakness Mm -hmm. is. So some children are learn easily when it comes to higher level components of language and with a good general ed program in those areas, they might do just fine, but um, they might need a lot more intensity in areas like phonemic awareness and phonics. And that would be, for example, your typical student with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Other children learn the word level aspect of reading, decoding, you know, pretty readily and don't need intervention in that area, um, but might need intervention when it comes to higher level language. Yeah. I like how you broke that down. And that was leading me to my next question with, with, 
you know, you have teachers and more importantly, school leaders that are looking out for programs to support their curriculums. And you did mention a lot of different areas that we that leaders should be looking at. But is there anything else that you'd like to add about what school leaders should look out for in terms of having a core reading program and then targeted intervention for children that continue to struggle in learning to read? So I would say leaders should be looking for programs that have a lot of explicit teaching in them, a lot of explicit systematic teaching with um, a clear sequence of skills for teachers to follow, not just the common core standards, which is what I have, you know, a lot of school leaders seem to think, oh, the teachers just go off and follow the common core. But that's especially for a lot of basic skills, it's not at the level of of day-to-day teaching, okay? And also, the teachers need the materials. There's What I see sometimes in a lot of schools is sort of the attitude that teachers are just going to whip up all these materials themselves. Well, that would be hard for me to do. And I've been doing this for 40 years and I know structure of language really, really well. And I could do it, but it would be difficult. And if you're going to rely on having teachers make up their own materials or download stuff from the web, they're going to be using a lot of things that really aren't very good. And there's going to be a lot of inconsistency among teachers, which is another problem. So, you know, if little Johnny is with teacher A, it's great. But if they happen to be placed in the classroom of teacher B, it's not so good. And then even if Little Johnny has a great year uh, with teacher A, then maybe next year the teacher is not so good. So if you want to have school staff where everybody is kind of rowing in the same direction and there's a lot, you know, in in these in the boat um, and there's a lot of coherence around good practices, then I think that's where having a good it's not that there's just one good curriculum um, you know, there's more than than uh, there, there's different options that school leaders can look at. So it's not just one particular program, but you want a program that uh, where there's a lot of explicit teaching, where uh, not a curriculum that's using, say, multiple queuing systems or encouraging guessing at words or things like that. Um, teach the school leaders need to avoid programs that. It, this sound, it sounds good on the surface to have every student kind of picking their own things, you know, their own books that they want to read and their own project work. Um, and so each student is kind of working in a different book or on a different thing. And that sounds positive because, you know, the student choice is involved. But the problem with that is it makes explicit teaching really, really difficult. Yeah. So you can you can have some student choice for sure. Like you can let students have choice in their independent reading that they do for homework. Or maybe there's a, you know, a, a component of the of the program where students are doing project work. But if the whole program is really built around that, it it sounds good, but it's making it really hard to do explicit teaching and systematic teaching. And what I tell 
school leaders in this situation is you have to realize that when you pick that kind of curriculum, you're picking a curriculum that is not a good fit for your special ed kids and your at risk kids. So it's much better to have a program, in my view, that has, you know, if you have a well-structured program, you can always back off of the structure or accelerate kids who are doing really well. But when you have a program that is much more loosely structured or makes explicit teaching hard, it's it's difficult or impossible to then um, impose the structure you know, later, as as I heard somebody say this, I thought was a really good way to put it. That was talk. They were talking specifically about phonics, but they said you cannot retrofit the phonics mm-hmm. if you've got you know books that aren't decodable and you've got materials that are not well organized in terms of word structure. Then don't think you're going to be able to kind of plug that in later. It doesn't. It doesn't work to mm-hmm. do that. Those are all amazing points. And I had was thinking about, too, some of those big caution areas for school leaders and teachers to avoid when choosing curriculum. Obviously, multiple queuing is the one that keeps ringing in my mind. And I appreciate you also talking about student choice and not establishing as much structure as you should have in an in a explicit reading program. And I keep coming back as well to this cohesion piece. I do a lot of work mm-hmm. with the, with professional development, and I remember a lot of literature and even characteristics supported by Learning First when they talk about the elements of professional development as having this cohesion, not just for curriculum, but through professional development and having school leadership ensuring that this is one language across all classrooms and grades. And so if I'm a school leader, where do I even start to implement this? Let's say I'm looking at the curriculum we have now and I see multiple queuing or I see a program that says have students choose the book they're going to read during reading time or it lacks that systematic explicit instruction. Where do I even start to try and I don't even know what the word is because I don't want to say rebuild the system because you can't just rebuild a system from scratch. So what, what changes could I be making in order to invest more in structured literacy practice? So I would say um, kind of an important initial step is teacher professional development to make sure that all teachers understand, you know, professional development that is done in a way that teachers can see is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So what I find with um, with teachers, even very experienced in service teachers, it will appreciate coursework or um, professional development that they can see has a direct impact on what you do in the classroom. So um, if we're going to teach them about, you know, the importance of decoding and why multiple queuing systems models of reading are wrong, then it's important to also tie that to what does this mean for what you do with kids? Um, what kind of feedback should you give when a student is reading in a book and, and is struggling with a word? You, you basically don't want to give any feedback that leads them away from looking carefully at the printed word and maybe toward pictures or guessing or that type of strategy. So the professional development piece would be really important. And, um, unfortunately, what I, you know, you might think, well, gee, a teacher, 
teachers who are working in schools, many of them have a master's, like, shouldn't they know this already? Um, no, actually, many of them don't. Um, what I think, just like, you know, we've been talking about K to 12 teaching often lacks coherence, teacher prep really lacks coherence. So when I was teaching full time, you know, I would teach students about how um, MSV or multiple cueing systems models of reading, you know, we've had scientific research for decades showing that that view of reading is wrong. But I might have a colleague down the hall that's teaching them all about MSV. Yeah. And for the student, it just leads to confusion. And or it leads it leads them, I think, to think that, well, all of this is just a matter of opinion that, you know, you know, Dr. Spear Swirling has her opinion, but Dr. Jones has her. opinion, mm-hmm. And they were somehow all equal. So so I think the professional development piece more often than not is important. And even even teachers who are you know pretty far along in terms of their professional development, that's good. But um many of them could benefit from more. So the stuff that I mentioned earlier, the um, research on reading profiles, my experience is that not many teachers are familiar with that. Um, There's a whole line of research on reading comprehension tests and um, how kids with different types of underlying difficulties might perform differently depending on the format of the test. Very few teachers I've talked to are familiar with that research. And and so I'm throwing out examples of things that are really important in practical terms. So I think for most people, there's always going to be some room for more PD linked to what you do in the classroom. And then um, ideally, and, and, and then no, even if the curriculum is less than desirable, there's probably some things that teachers could start doing right away. Even though ideally you want a better structured literacy kind of curriculum, they can stop encouraging kids to look at pictures and guess at words. Um, You know, they could give better feedback. They could try to structure the skills that they're teaching in a way that is more logical and consistent with research and more coherent. And then, you know, in an ideal world, you'd maybe have some coaching of teachers to implement these practices because the coaching piece, we know from research, and this is also consistent with my experience, is very important that if you're not observing teachers working with kids, teachers are, you know, there's room for improvement that the teachers miss because they're just, you know, this happens to all of us. We don't know what we don't know, right? We, we're thinking a certain way. So a knowledgeable coach can be hugely important. And then, um, you know, ideally you would have a good curriculum in place to, to um, anchor all of this stuff. I mean, the curriculum is enormously important. I love those pieces. And I, of course, get really excited when you talk about coaching, and I want to ask about your work with supervised teaching and pre-service teacher preparation. The other piece, you talked about curriculum and teachers hearing different types of things. The one thing you talked about, uh, MSV, the multiple queuing system, and then as opposed to um, explicit teaching of, of the structure of language and reading. Another thing that I'll hear is in terms of curriculum is, well, What's the difference between a decodable text and, let's say, a leveled reader? 
how how would you explain that? And do you hear that often too? Because I, I wanted to establish how different they are. Yes, yes. So a decodable text is a text that is controlled to certain patterns that children have studied, uh, that they've learned in their reading instruction. It would usually be most relevant for children that are functioning at early levels of decoding, maybe kindergarten and grade one. And that could include an older struggling reader. Um, So a text like that might be there's one that um, that we used to use in field work called the Red Fox Cub. So, um, you know, you have a text that says something like um, the Red Fox Cub lives in its den with its mom and dad. So you've got, you know, CVC words like red, fox, cub, mom, dad, den. Um, and, th- and you might have pictures. Um, and pictures can be good because they're kind of motivating and you can use them to enhance comprehension. But in a decodable, the pictures are not used to facilitate guessing. The early level texts are typically predictable. So um, in a predictable text, uh, my kids, when my kids learned to read, there, there was one that was very popular called Mrs. Wishy-Washy. And there was a recurrent, it was about Mrs. Wishy-Washy was a farm woman who wa- liked to wash the animals. And um, so you would have a picture of, you know, you would have this recurrent, predictable text, like, um, in went the cow wishy-washy, wishy-washy. And it would show Mrs. Wishy-washy with a tub and the cow in the tub being washed. And then the next page would say, in went the pig, wishy-washy, wishy-washy. In went the horse, wishy-washy, wishy-washy. And so the idea was that the teacher would read the text to the children and the pictures were used in a way that the child could tell, you know, they would kind of memorize the text because it was the same structure over and over. And then they would look at the at the picture to guess, are we talking about the cow, the horse, the pig? And um, what's bad about that, the thing that's most bad about it is it gives children the wrong message about what's important in reading. Reading is not interpreting pictures. It's decoding the print. And that's a a really important fundamental message for kids to understand very early in reading. One of my friends who was used to be a paraprofessional for many years described a child she had in class that she was reading with and he was reading predictables. And he said to her, look, Mrs. B, I can read with my eyes closed. Oh, no. And because he had memorized it, right? Right. And um, it's kind of a funny story, but it's also kind of a disturbing story because that child learned something we didn't we didn't want him to learn Mm -hmm. um he's not understanding the basic nature of reading so the predictables have uh early on and then the level texts are a little bit different but they are typically not controlled to certain word patterns so it's a problem for children um who have decoding difficulties especially at the early stages Mm -hmm. If you're te- if you're using a good decoding program, then eventually children get to a point where they've learned enough one syllable word patterns that they can read more more um, 
uncontrolled or natural text, but they still need to read text that's at their instructional level. And um, we still don't want to use pictures in a way that enables guessing at words because it's kind of giving the long message. Those are excellent points. And as you're talking, okay, side note, every read listener knows that I meet with the guest before we, we talk. And I'll say this, you know, we met a couple weeks ago and I had this wild idea. I was like, yo, you know, if I had a lot of money, Dr. Spears Swirling, would you just become the dean of a school of education? And now I just wish I I was sitting on millions of dollars right now because <laughs> I mean, I'm learning so much from you in this time that we're that we're speaking together. And let's just say you know, 2022 happened and I fell, I hit the lotto. I don't know. Somehow I had this ancient inheritance from Ancestry.com. I don't know where it is, but I'm getting the money and the resources for you. And I want to start a teacher preparation program. I'm naming you Dean. So what would be on your wish list to enacting this program to ensure that all reading teachers are adequately prepared for their classrooms? So um, that would be wonderful. That's a wonderful fantasy to have, right? I know. <laughs> um, so in addition to you know being well-grounded in the kind of research that we've been talking about and the kind of teaching approaches for both general and special educators so that you have that coherence. I would, one thing I would really like to see is uh, better teacher admission standards. So um, here in Connecticut, a, a few years ago, Connecticut eliminated it's um, basic skills test for teachers, it's basic competency test. And I mean, there are some arguments that can be made for doing that. But in my opinion, it's a really big mistake um, because good teaching is certainly not only about academic competence, but good academic competence is a good start. And it's a foundation. You know, we're expecting teachers to be able to do uh, things that things they were never really expected to do in the past in terms of teaching to every student and differentiating and learning all of this structure of language stuff, you know, not to mention all the other things that teachers have to deal with, like COVID and school shootings and all of that. So in terms of literacy, in order for teachers to learn the content and implement the content we want, they need good basic skills themselves. And I'm not talking about every teacher. You know, it's not just about like SAT scores or that kind of thing. But it's really a mistake, I think, to, you know, to not start with people who have strong academic competence. Um, and in addition to that, we should do a lot of other things in terms of admission. So it is really important to to recruit a diverse teacher workforce because a lot of teachers are going to be going into school districts where they're working with low income or black or brown kids. And we want teachers of color. So I, I completely support those kinds of recruitment efforts. So I think that when you have appropriate admission standards, it, um, it it draws the kind of candidates you want. And then, you know, we can fund, we can do additional recruitment where we can fund students who are capable 
but might not have the means to um, to go into a teacher prep program. So that would be one thing I would do. Um, I think that teacher ed has to have, you know, good rigor throughout the program. So one of the things I found in teacher ed, and I think this is pretty rampant in a lot of programs, although I haven't done a formal study, um, a lot of a lot of teacher ed courses don't give exams. Um, students do plenty of projects, to be sure. It's not that students aren't doing requirements, um, course requirements, but a lot of course requirements are linked to accreditation demands that involve things like doing you know, lesson plans and diagnostic reports. And for sure, those kinds of assignments are really important, but they're not really a substitute for like basic content knowledge. So if you're going to become a doctor, well, yeah, doctors have to, you know, doctors in training, I'm sure, have to develop treatment plans and they have to work with actual patients. But before that, they have to know about the circulatory system and, um, you know, neurology and um, the endocrine system. And so teachers need, teachers of literacy need that grounding in important components of reading, important scientific knowledge about reading, and then also the structure of language piece as a foundation before they start doing, you know, lessons and um, working with students, which is also a really important part. So I would do all that. That piece, that's one of the pieces that is really near and dear to my heart because I have been so disappointed to see my own state back off of uh, what I think, you know, 10 or 20 years ago was uh, the right idea in terms of uh, teacher admission standards. Mm. What about looking at teacher educators? So you had spoken how in your class, you'd be talking about one, you know, research-based Principal, then in your other class, you said Dr. Jones would be talking about three queuing systems. So how would you approach hiring teacher educators to ensure that there was a cohesion of the science of reading and structured literacy? Well, this is a really hard problem. There's a lot of people who've been trying to solve this problem, this teacher ed problem. And it, and it is a really big problem that kind of goes back to, you know, how people get trained. So the people that are in doctoral programs, certain doctoral programs, they're not reading the same journals. They're not going to the same conferences. Um, so, you know, you get and, and these are people that have PhDs. So they feel that they have the knowledge and they and they do have certain kinds of knowledge that are really valuable. Um, but you know, there can be a fundamental disconnect around things like these multiple queuing systems, models of reading, or another big disconnect. Um, there are certain things that are big disconnects. So there's the MSV thing. There's assessment. Um, certain, uh, you know, the, the uh, embrace of MSV tends to go along with embracing, quote, authentic assessment, mm. end quote, which means, uh, you know, sort of a disdain for curriculum-based measurement, 
such as Dibbles and um, Ames Web and Easy CBM, which is a type of assessment that is extremely useful for universal screening of children. Yes. So, um, so the so this teacher ed students in those professors' classes are not getting that content, and even worse, they often get a bias against it. You know, it's not authentic. It's not they they don't really understand the idea of different assessments are useful for different purposes. Um, another, there's another big one. Oh, another big one is a kind of a negative attitude toward explicit teaching. Mm. So um, this idea that, you know, we use a more guided kind of approach and children, it's better for children to have to induce skills and figure it out on their own. Um, and that tends to kind of, go along, <laughs> these things tend to, you know, kind of coalesce together. Uh, so it, I think that what the way this plays out in teacher ed is that the professors in these different areas, and it often sorts out as uh, a general ed and special ed type of distinction. Although, you know, there's certain variability even with it each of those fields. You you asked, I think, initially about how to um, how to find somebody, how to find if you were hiring a professor, how would you find the right uh, person with the background that you want? Um, well, I had a favorite question in my in my full time faculty days. I was on many search committees. And one of my favorite questions to ask uh the people that were interviewing for professor jobs uh, was whose work has really influenced you Ooh, in the field? And um, I, I, you could tell a lot just by their answer to that question. You know, if they named some icon of whole language, I knew that, okay, this person's not going to be a good fit. <laughs> um, they could name a lot of different people. You know, they could say uh, Keith Stanovich or, uh, you know, they, there's a ton of, you know, Isabel Liberman or um, uh, Mark Seidenberg or there's a ton of people that they could name where I would say, oh, OK, that's good. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if they couldn't name anybody, um, if there was no person they could name that was kind of a recognized authority, uh, a recognized scientist of reading then that was a bad sign. Or if they named someone that was really more of a whole language type of figure or a, a guru in education, as opposed to a reading scientist, then that was, then that was like, <clears throat> onto then the you had like, video. you know, <laughs> earplugs or something. <laughs> <laughs> Like next. That's so funny. Um, well, I appreciate you bringing in all those elements. And as you were talking, first of all, calling all people that have millions of dollars for us. Let's just start our own university. But um, in these elements, but I liked the yes and piece of really um, a strong admissions process with assessment and rigor in the curriculum and ensuring that you do have teacher educators that are there that are teaching in accordance to the science. I know in a lot of your work with teacher prep, you, you do do a lot of work with coursework and building knowledge. And you've also done a lot of work with supervised teaching. So I know this was something you were really excited about when we spoke a couple of weeks ago. So what is the role of supervised teaching in supporting pre-service and new teachers and teacher prep programs? Okay, so that is a great question. And um, 
it also makes me think of another thing that I would add to my fantasy wish list, <laughs> which would be to have really strong cooperating schools and teachers. So people that are already implementing these practices that teacher candidates can go in and see it. You know, sometimes the picture is worth a thousand words. So yes. um, it, to see it being implemented is really, really helpful. And then conversely, if you give them, I mean, I have seen this happen with my own students, they can go through a really strong program. And then they, if they go into a school that is implementing a lot of, you know, um, non-explicit teaching, non-SL types of practices, non-structured literacy, uh, then, you know, they eventually start doing what their colleagues are doing, right? After, you know, three, four, five years, your work as a pre-service teacher kind of fades away and um, you start doing what's happening in your school. So that would be that would be a really important piece that I would want to have on on my wish list. So, um, and now I just need you to remind me of what the question was when I went off on this tangent. No, I love that you talked about cooperating schools. And so then that brings me to supervised teaching. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was about supervised teaching, right? Yes. So, yes. So, um, so I think the supervised teaching is hugely important. Um, it's also the thing that tends to be more motivating to a lot of teacher candidates, like actually being able to work with kids. And um, I think that, you know, my own program when I was working full time did a, a the, the program that was in use in my department uh, ha- did a good job with this. So students would start in their early courses where they would maybe do observation in classrooms, but they weren't actually working with kids. And then you would have um, in the courses that I taught, that was usually their first experience working one-to-one with a student under supervision. So, um, and then, then after the courses they took with me and my other colleagues that taught those courses, then there was another course where they would, uh, the whole course was working in a school with a small group of kids. And so, you know, you're kind of upping the ante mm-hmm. from one-to-one to being able to manage a small group. And then only after all of those experiences would they do student teaching, which would be the kind of the culminating experience. So in the courses that I taught, which are the ones I, I know best because of so much experience with them, um, the beginning of the, the first half of the semester would be all of this content knowledge that we've talked about, like important components of reading and um, you know, research on reading development and why children tend to have difficulty in reading if they, if they do for kids who struggle. Um, and then around the midpoint, they would um, go into a school, it was a course that would meet twice a week. So we would still meet once a week for a regular class. And then the other class would meet in the field and they would work one-to-one with a student in reading. Um, I would be there on site for every session. So I would be kind of circling around to observe them. And they would start by giving some informal assessments. And then they would have about half a dozen tutoring sessions with the student. And um, we would, we would try, you know, I would work the school I uh, used to do this in was wonderful. It was a wintergreen magnet in Hamden. They were a great school. And um, so we would try to get 
we would work with the teachers to get kids who had sort of mild difficulties because the format of the class was not really enough to address more serious problems that would come in later versions of the field work. But this was just to, you know, this was an initial work with a student, develop lesson plans, uh, engage the student, give appropriate feedback to student errors, you know, revise your instruction depending on what is and isn't working, that sort of thing. And um, I, I taught the course for many, many years and I mean, there were students who, you know, they didn't like me and they didn't like my stupid assignments and exams, but almost without exception, they loved the field work um, because they could see, you know, it was motivating to work with kids. And it was was much more meaningful for me to be able to say, um, you know, notice when this child had this problem blending, that's phonemic awareness. That's an example of a kid who's struggling with phonemic awareness. And that would it would help to gel that knowledge in a way that um, that just talking about it in an academic, you know, the, the academic grounding was important, but it really gelled better once they got the practical application. And there was a, I used to also teach a course that was a math course that was parallel, where we would do the exact same stuff in math. And if you ever want to do a podcast on math, like, I'm in. <laughs> because the, everything that we've talked about in reading goes double for math. And um, math, the math and field, in, in my opinion, is kind of where reading was 20 years ago. So very, you know, totally dominated by constructivism, by this idea that um, kids just learn from osmosis and immersion and hands-on experience. And um very problematic for kids who struggle in that. So there, so the two courses were set up in in parallel, but one was focused on literacy, the other was focused on math. So happy you talked about math. I am, I'm a math teacher by happenstance. I was always yeah. a great math student and loved it, but I never knew I could teach it until I came to Winward and I was trained in to teach math in an explicit way. And it was probably one of, I mean, I loved to teach reading, but it was ma- teaching math is such a magical experience. We had Dr. Mm-hmm. Paul Riccamini on the podcast in November to talk about math because he's a professor at Penn State. And I'm so happy you brought that up. And as you're talking about these field experiences, I was brought back to the classroom and ugh, I miss it. So I appreciate you ending with with that piece. As we end, this is the January 2022 episode. And I always like to end each episode with the purpose of read, which seeks to inform the broader community about the greater integration of research, education, and advocacy. So as you look ahead to this next year and beyond, if you'd like to dream big, we've already dreamt big about our new university that's starting. So what what is your hope for you personally or for the field at large to increasing the intersection of research, education, and advocacy in reading education? So I would really hope to see more of this research get implemented in practice. Um, I think that there there are, you know, some areas that are sort of less um, controversial is not quite the right word that I want to use, but less fraught than areas like phonics have been that it's it's really, you know, phonics teaching and phonemic awareness teaching are really important, but they kind of have a history of 
uh, of argument around them. There's things that should not be controversial, like important, you know, common profiles of reading difficulties that, um, yes, there are kids who don't struggle with the code and their main problem is comprehension. And we want to train teachers to work with those kids too. But there is, you know, it all kind of gels together, right? You need to know about all of it in order to be effective. Or the research that I mentioned earlier on uh, uh, reading comprehension measurement. Um, And some of this, some of this research has involved uh, tests that are very familiar to teachers like uh, gray oral reading and Mm -hmm. the Woodcock Johnson and measures like that, that um, I would really encourage anybody who's listening and who's interested, look up the work of Jan Keenan, K-E-E-N-A-N and her colleagues who have done research on tests that um, will be very practical for you for your work with children, for doing assessment. So those are some of the areas that, you know, in my view, um, should kind of be low-hanging fruit, should be the things that um, hopefully people would pay, would get increased attention in education and better implementation, along with all the other things that are really important too, like explicit teaching of phonemic awareness and phonics and other literacy skills. I would hope to have more coherence. Um, We've talked about that a lot today. So having, you know, more consistency and coherence in teacher preparation, even though that's a challenging goal to achieve. And um, in K-12, I would hope to have um, better choices of curriculum uh, for children who struggle, particularly in tier one in general education. So, uh, you know, if, as, as I mentioned earlier, if school leaders pick curricula that are more oriented toward explicit teaching, it doesn't mean that you cannot differentiate for kids who learn with ease mm-hmm. and can be moved along more quickly into other you know, other kinds of work. But the the choice of more structured literacy types of curricula will be a much better fit for your kids who are at risk than what is often being done in general education curricula these days. Those are great summarizing points. And to echo what you what you talked about, I like the assessment piece. Jan Keenan will add to the read webpage under the episode bookmarks coherence and consistency and curriculum ending with three C's. I love to have like, you know, just like to have something that that's catchy that people can take away. So the three C's coherence, consistency, curriculum, especially for our struggling readers. Dr. Spears Swirling, it has been an absolute joy. You have, you are the dream. Speaking of all the things that we've dreamt about, you are the dream to speak about. Thank you so much for being on the read podcast with us today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all our readers for listening and tuning in and learning with me. Thank you, Dr. Louise Pierce-Swirling for that joy of an episode. Your experience, your expertise, and your insights are truly inspiring. You can learn more from Dr. Spear-Swirling by accessing my top read bookmarks or top moments from her episode by visiting her episode page on our website. To learn more about read or upcoming episodes, visit readpodcast.org. 
My goal is to continue to connect with and learn from inspiring leaders and advocates in research and education. If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of topics and speakers, feel free to reach out via email at info at readpodcast.org. I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. You can also like or follow the Windward Institute's social media pages to find out more about upcoming speakers, episodes, and events. Until next time, readers.